Hallelujah. Amen. What a privilege to be in the presence of the Lord with all of you wonderful people tonight. You can be seated just for a moment. Amen. I give honor to your pastor and his wife in their absence. If they hear this, I want them to know I'm thankful for the opportunity and the invitation to be here. Uh, always an honor to get to be with you wonderful folks. And um, I know there's people gone from Memorial Day weekend and all of that, hopefully having a good time with family. But we're here tonight, one mind, one accord as a church family. Amen. And uh, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And uh, if you're visiting here, I'm sure I could speak for your pastor and the leadership team by saying uh, this church is so glad that you're here and we want you to become a part of the family as well. And uh, maybe God will use this sermon tonight to help play a part in that. Uh, he wants you to know you're welcome into the family of God. And um, speaking of family, it's so awesome. There he is. He knew I was coming for him. See Brother Domaris, uh, Brother Tyler, Sister Heather. Uh, some of you may know they are actually family of mine, blood family. You all are my spiritual family, but they're spiritual and blood. Amen. I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how exactly it all works. I get confused with second cousins, third cousins, twice removed, three times removed. I don't know how it all works, but they are family, and it's an honor to call them that. And uh, so good to see them here. Brother Earl's already mentioned my wonderful wife is here with me. So glad and thankful for her. Thank you for your kindness to her and to us over the years. Truly, thank you for your kindness and hospitality to us over the years. It's been a minute since we got to see you, uh, but we're so grateful because you guys have always been so loving and kind to my wife and I. We appreciate that. And um, I am going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, just to give it to the media team. Thank you, brother, for your patience. And uh, wow, that's a lot quicker than I would have ever thought. So someone give this man a raise that's incredible second samuel 4 and 4 and then you can hold that there because we're going to read that and then afterwards we're going to read second samuel 9 3 through 11. second samuel 9 3 through 11 and i'll try to make this quick i know it's a little bit longer of a scripture reading i want to be mindful of your legs and your knees tonight um and uh, it would be i i would be uh remiss if I did not say something you're used to hearing by now, but congratulations once again. I know you're probably used to it by now, but congratulations once again on this beautiful building. I've got to see it, but not since it's totally been complete. I don't think, uh, if I did, it was just briefly, certainly have not uh, preached here while it's been complete. So congratulations to you, this wonderful church. I know many of you were working on this night and day, and your hard work has shown. It has paid off. What a beautiful building. Uh, every area I've walked through, I've just been absolutely amazed. So praise God for this beautiful facility he's given you. Amen. 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 So beautiful. All right, let's read this scripture together, 2 Samuel 4 and 4. The Bible says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. The news came that uh, Saul and Jonathan had died. And so his nurse, this young boy's nurse, took him up and fled. And as it came to pass, uh, as she made haste to flee that the boy fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. 
Amen. If you're new here, uh, you're going to hear that name Mephibosheth a lot tonight. If you're anything like me, when I first gave my life to God and came back to God, uh, anytime I heard names, a lot of names like this in the Old Testament, because I wasn't used to hearing them in the culture around me, it would be easy for me to kind of tune out a little bit when I'd hear some of these older archaic names. But I just want to encourage some of you that are visiting or newer tonight, uh, don't, don't tune out when you hear this name, because it's very important. There's a very beautiful story that's very, very relevant uh, for us here tonight, for our modern times. And that's what's so beautiful about the Bible. Regardless of some old names, they're timeless truths. They're always relevant and applicable. And I uh, just want to encourage you in that. Let's continue to 2 Samuel 9, 3 through 11. 2 Samuel 9, 3 through 11. Man, scripture says this, continuing with the same story we just read. And the king said, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, the grandson of Saul is what that means, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son, unto Mephibosheth, all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and sh uh, thou shalt bring in the fruits, that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And I'm just going to read the final part of verse 11. The Bible says, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you're familiar what a beautiful story this is. And we're going to be preaching from this tonight. And with the help of the Holy Ghost, I want to preach to you the king's table. The king's table table, amen, is what we're going to talk about tonight. I believe God is extending an invitation to someone maybe who's not known the Lord or people who have known the Lord for a long time. He's extending an invitation to come and feast with him, dine with him, and enjoy him like perhaps you never have before. Amen. Are you thankful for the king's table? Before we're seated tonight, before we continue, why don't we lift our hands, lift our voices, and let's let the Lord know that he is welcome in this house tonight. Jesus, we thank you for your sweet presence that we already feel. We thank you for your redemptive touch we believe is in this place. God, I believe there's a spirit of healing. I believe there's some brokenness that you're able to heal and put back together tonight on a Tuesday night. Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, in Liberty Lake as it is in heaven, in this church as it is in heaven, in their hearts 
And in my heart as it is in heaven, let it be done. Do what only you can do in this place. Take us deeper into your presence, your love, your joy. Take us into abundant life that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And Jesus, we give you thanks for what you're going to do tonight. Why don't we clap our hands and praise him as we're seated tonight. Hallelujah. You can be seated. Thank you. If anyone had a right to get bitter over his brokenness, if anyone had a right to just give up and stop caring, it was Mephibosheth. Most of us know the story. Again, for those that don't, I'll really quickly tell you, if you didn't already know, Mephibosheth's grandfather was the King Saul, who became a wicked, disobedient king to God, brought a lot of dishonor to his family and to the people of God, caused a lot of trouble in the land. This was Mephibosheth's grandfather. Uh, uh, Not only did he have that hanging over his head, but he had a father named Jonathan who was a good father, And uh, there are many individuals that don't have the privilege of having a good father. Mephibosheth had a great one, the best friend of King David. But unfortunately, Mephibosheth only had five years with his wonderful father, Jonathan, because at five years old, uh, when Mephibosheth was five years old, Jonathan, his father, died. And to add on to the list of growing misfortunes, Mephibosheth became crippled due to, uh, uh, from being dropped by his nurse when he was young, crippled from a young age due to no fault of his own. The nurse knew that it was the custom when a new king took power for the new king to kill all of the offspring of the previous dynasty so no one else could claim a right to the throne. And so the nurse was doing what she was supposed to do, picked up Mephibosheth in her haste. She dropped him, he fell, and he became permanent perhaps paralyzed, but certainly broken in his legs. Life had dealt Mephibosheth a really bad deck of cards, so to speak. And because he was human, just like you and I, I am sure that he had a lot of questions. I'm sure Mephibosheth wanted to know why that he had to grow up without a dad. Why growing up, looking around, and on Father's Day, everyone else going up and hugging their dad and Mephibosheth having no one? Why did it have to be this way? I'm sure Mephibosheth wanted to know why he had been dropped and hurt when he was little due to no fault of his own. And now Mephibosheth, the Bible says when David invited him, he was living in a place called Lo-Debar, which Lo just means no, Debar means pasture or thing. So it literally translates, he was living in no pasture or no thing, nothing. You could literally translate it as nothingville. That's where Mephibosheth was living. He was quite literally a sheep without a shepherd. He came from nothingville. He was living in nothing. He was living in emptiness. He was living in hiding He was living in darkness. He was living in in absolutely just dark emptiness. That's where he was when David called out to him. But I'm here to just remind someone tonight that in spite of all of this pain, in spite of all of this trauma, in spite of all of these unanswered questions about his life, he did not let these things keep him from coming to the king. He did not let these things keep him from bowing to the king when the king called him forward. Instead of just staying in his pain and staying in nothingness and staying in hopelessness and staying in 
in emptiness. Mephibosheth accepted the king's offer and he chose to sit at the king's table. In the middle of his brokenness, the king invited him to the table and Mephibosheth ate with the king for the rest of his life. And from that day forward, everybody would know that this king was different. As I already mentioned back then, it was the custom of the kings to kill the previous king's offspring, so no one could challenge the current king's claim to the throne. Mephibosheth was Saul, the previous king's grandson, and Mephibosheth could have easily started a coup, an uprising, and probably gained many loyal followers of his own just because he was King Saul's grandson. So what David did by not only sparing his life, but inviting him into the palace where he might hear of some of the king's secrets, hear about the king's plans, sit at the table several times a day with the king's family. For David to do that was absolutely crazy, insane, and unheard of. No other king back then was doing what David did. Amen. But that's because no one was like David. In an incredible act of grace, David was risking his own life and his own dynasty by sparing Mephibosheth's life. It seems crazy, but that's the nature of grace, and that's what was extended to Mephibosheth. Some of you already know where I'm headed. This is how David is a type of Christ in this story, because this is what Jesus did for you and I. He gave his life so we could have abundant life. He gave his life so we could sit at the table with him and feast and die on his joy, on his peace, on his goodness, on his righteousness, on his salvation. I'm thankful that the king we serve is not like other kings. I'm thankful that we serve the king of kings that is still inviting all kinds of broken people to sit at his table. Hallelujah. And while other kings only wanted royalty and perfection at their table, Other kings of the age just wanted the poets, the celebrities, the singers and songwriters, the people that looked plastic and perfect on the outside, the people that had money and notoriety. That is who most kings wanted at their table. But King David was delighted to have a broken person sit with him and feast with him. And once again, it is the same way with our king, Jesus Christ. He is delighted to have a table full of people that were once broken, people that have a past, people that has all kinds of trauma and darkness sitting at the table, feasting on the fruit of the Spirit, eating on the milk and meat of the Word and being transformed by the goodness of God. Jesus delights in saving and helping broken people. If you're here and you feel broken and messed up, traumatized, dysfunctional, damaged goods, you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus is inviting and wants you to sit at his table right now in the middle of your brokenness, not after you get perfect, not after it all works out. Right now, God is offering you a seat at his table in the middle of all your questions about the past. God is offering you a beautiful future in the middle of your pain. God's offering you deliverance and peace and hope. And at the king's table, Brokenness was covered. 
What's so wonderful about a table is it's the great equalizer. You all sit at the table, you all dine together, no one's better than one another, you're all eating the same meal, the same food. Mephibosheth's brokenness was in his legs. So when he accepted the king's invitation to pull up a chair and sit underneath that table, the king's table covered his legs and no one could even see his brokenness. As they sat around the table, they saw Mephibosheth not as a broken person, but just like one of the king's sons, just like one of the king's family members, because all that made Mephibosheth broken was covered by the king's table. And when we come into the kingdom and sit at his table, we are no longer defined by our brokenness. We're no longer defined by our past. And we are all made equal because Christ has covered our brokenness with his blood. If you're here tonight and you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of all your sins, Jesus wants to cover your sins and cover your brokenness with his blood. He's inviting you to the king's table to pull up a chair so the table and his blood will cover your broken legs and cover your broken past and nobody will nobody will know nobody will look at you the way you used to look at yourself and others used to look at you everyone is equal it doesn't matter your background your ethnicity how rich or poor you are where you come from who your parents were come on the king's table is the great equalizer we are all equal in the eyes of God at the king's table when we've been washed in his blood and filled with his spirit hallelujah And Jesus is inviting someone tonight to his table. Maybe you're someone that you've never been at the table. You've never pulled up a chair. In other words, you've never been born of the water and the spirit. Jesus is definitely inviting you in. But can I also say I'm not just preaching to those. I pray that God captures everyone in the net, so to speak, tonight. Because there are others who have been sitting at the king's table but have not been eating There are others who have been sitting at the king's table, and it can happen to any of us. The trials and traumas of life make us lose our appetite. And we're sitting at the king's table with a fork and knife near us and a beautiful banquet and feast of the goodness, love, and joy of God. But our spiritual appetite's been lost. We feel sick to our stomach. We're hurt. We're burdened. We're pained. Whatever it might be. And so we're at the table, but we're not feasting on the goodness of God. And I can't tell you how many times there's wonderful, amazing people like yourselves and like other uh, wonderful God's people around the country and around the world who accepted the invitation to the king's table. Maybe some years ago, maybe some months ago, maybe a long time ago, but there was a point where they stopped eating. In fact, there's some that maybe they've been at the table, but they've never picked up the fork and knife and never come to know just how amazing Jesus is, just how beautiful he is. They might go through the motions. They might go to church and thank God for that. But are they feasting? That's the question. Are you feasting on the goodness of God? Are you living in the abundant life that he has for you? Are you feasting on the peace of Jesus? Are you enjoying all the things that you have as a rightful inheritance as a son and daughter of God? Or are you living far from him like an orphan? Are you living in hiding from him? Are you feasting on God? Or are you just going, going through it, just trying to survive and make it? Because if you are not enjoying Jesus, If you are not feasting on him, Jesus is not here to condemn you, to bash you, to be harsh with you. Jesus comes with an open hand and says, you've been at my table for a long time, but now it's time to eat. You've got to start enjoying me because I am good. I'm wonderful. I want you to see how amazing I am. I want you to have a smile again. I want you to have peace again. 
That's what the Lord wants to do for his kids. Jesus wants every one of his kids to delight in him and see what a wonderful father he is. Hallelujah. And do you know what the name Mephibosheth means? I'm sure some of the Bible scholars know and maybe could even offer some more insight I'm not aware of. And uh, I studied this, and there's a few different interpretations of what people think it could mean. But the most common interpretation I could find of his name is his name means the breaking apart of shame or the end of shame. The breaking apart of shame or the end of shame. And it makes sense when you consider what Jonathan Mephibosheth's father went through, the shame he experienced. His father, King Saul, constantly shamed his son, Jonathan. On one occasion, in 1 Samuel 20, Saul shouted and cursed at his son, said all kinds of expletives towards him and said that he was ashamed to him and he was ashamed to his mother. Jonathan, living in the shadow of the shame his father would put on him, the shame his father brought on his family, the shame his father brought on the land. And so when it came time for Jonathan to name his own son, he prophetically named Mephibosheth the end of shame. I believe what Jonathan was doing here is Jonathan was saying, hey, the shame stops here. I will not shame my son the way my father shamed me. I will not speak about my son the way my father spoke about me. So I'm naming my son the end of shame because I will not perpetuate the cycle. I, will, I don't have to continue what my father did. It's gonna end with me and my kids. It's gonna end with me and my kids. So son, I'm gonna give you a beautiful name, the end of shame. Daddy, grandpapa may have shamed me and hurt me and left me with some baggage, but son, it stops with you. It's gonna end here. It's, it's a new chance. It's, it's a new era. This is the end of shame. Hallelujah. It's going to stop with you. You say, I, I don't understand though. You say, you know, I, I thought shame, shame came from sins that we've committed. Mephibosheth didn't commit any sins to end up in his position. Well, shame of course does come from sins that we commit, but shame doesn't only come from mistakes that we make. We also carry shame from things that have been done to us that were no fault of our own. We also carry shame when someone betrayed us and made us feel less than. We also carry shame from things that happened to us when we were young or things that happened to us when we were, things that happened to us that were out of our control. We carry shame. Mephibosheth was carrying a lot of that shame. His family lineage We've talked about it already. A wicked grandfather, a dead father, crippled from a young age. It's pretty easy for an orphan to feel shame. It's pretty easy for a cripple to feel shame. It's easy for a broken person that did nothing to deserve their brokenness to feel shame over it. And Mephibosheth, you know, I just imagine when other kids were going out throwing the football around, playing basketball, whatever they did back there, Mephibosheth was watching from a chair, watching from crutches, feeling shame that he could not be like all of the other kids. 
Shame is why he called himself a dead dog when David told him that he wanted to dine with him and wanted him in the palace. All he could think to call himself is, why would you want a dead dog like me? But you tell me Mephibosheth didn't struggle with shame. The shame of Mephibosheth's past was destroyed by the grace of the king. The meaning of his name was prophetically fulfilled, the end of shame, when he accepted the invitation to feast with the king. The shame was over. Now he's loved. Now he's adopted. Now he's, at, he's one of the king's sons. Now he's delighted in. Now he gets to feast continually. The shame ended when the feast began and we, when he accepted the king's invitation. You see, if the enemy can keep us in a cycle of shame, then we will stay in a cycle of sin. But scripture says there is no condemnation or no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. And if you're here and you're not yet in Christ Jesus, you haven't yet obeyed the gospel, I'm preaching the scripture to you in faith, amen, because the Lord wants you to be in Christ Jesus and be one of his kids. So I'm offering this to everyone. Scripture says you do not have to live in condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus, hallelujah. If you love God, if you've obeyed the gospel, and that's most if not everyone here tonight, So a relationship with Jesus is the cure for shame, the cure for things that happen to you that you never asked for. You don't have to be ashamed over that any longer. He is the cure for mistakes that you made that you wish you could take back. Jesus is the cure for things that happened to you when you were young. Jesus is the answer for all of that, and he's offering you a seat of honor at his table. Why? So he can end your shame. So he can destroy your shame. Some of us need to realize Jesus has been waiting to feast with us for a long time. You've been crouching from him in fear. You've been avoiding him. You've been hiding from him. And the whole time Jesus is saying, I really just want to eat with you. I really just want to hang out with you. I really just want to love on you. I really just want to help you. You're one of my kids. Would you come to my table? Would you pick up the fork and eat this incredible ravishing food that I have for you? Mephibosheth was broken, but he was loved and not forgotten. He may have been lost, but he wasn't worthless. And what happened to him when he was young did not disqualify him from receiving the love of the king. I'm going to say that again because we hear things like this and it's so easy to nod our head, but not always let it soak into our spirit. Someone needs to hear what happened to him and what happened to you when you were young does not disqualify you from receiving the love, grace, and blessing of the king. You know, the problem with shame is it does a lot of terrible things to us when we believe the lies of the voice of shame. And you know, it's, it's understandable to feel shame when you make a mistake. In fact, I'd rather someone feel shame when they sin than not feel shame at all. We live in a shameless world, a shameless generation. But the problem with, it's not, it's not feeling some shame when we sin. The problem is what we do with our shame. And what we do with our shame is we hide. We hide from God. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, When Adam and Eve sinned, 
what happened? They felt shame. The Bible says they were ashamed. Okay, so far so good. I understand. Better they feel shame than not shame. It's what they did next that was the problem. The Bible says because they were ashamed, they hid from the presence of God. Shame will cause you to hide from God, hide from the voice of God, hide from the goodness of God, hide from the presence of God. And ever since that day, humans have been doing the exact same thing. Whenever we feel shame, we hide. We'll use busyness, we'll use distraction, we'll use anything we can to hide from the voice of God because we feel so ashamed, we feel so unworthy, we feel so less than, whether it's because of a mistake that we made or, again, nothing we did, to, to, but just things that were done to us, the shame causes us to hide. And the Lord is wanting someone to come out of hiding tonight. The Lord is wanting to bring someone out of hiding tonight where you can come out of the shadows, come out of the corners. It's not no longer be a person that can't look others in the eye, but your eyes instantly go to the ground because you feel embarrassed and you feel ashamed. People that come and you sit on the pew, but your heart and your mind is not present because there is so much shame. Jesus is trying to get someone's attention to say, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, I love you. you you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. If there's shame because of a mistake you made, don't hide from me, just repent. That's what the Lord wants us to hear. If there's shame from a mistake we made, don't hide, repent. The Lord will receive your repentance. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you, but make up in your mind, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna stop hiding. There's a king that's inviting me to his table and I don't have to hear and listen to the voice of shame any longer that causes me to hide, that inner critic within myself that's constantly telling me how flawed I am, how messed up I am, how much I don't deserve God's love and grace, how much I need to strive and exert my own effort to try to earn his love. All these lies of shame, it's time to put them aside, put them behind us, accept the king's invitation, sit at his table and say, I'm not going to listen to the voice of shame in my life any longer. There's no condemnation. I've been set free. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm a wretch. But Christ made me pure. Christ imputed his righteousness to me. Yeah, my righteousness is his filthy rags. But Jesus gave me value and purity and righteousness. I don't have to live with my head down when I'm a son or daughter of the king. Do you really think that sons or daughters of earthly presidents or prime ministers walk around in fear? No, if you watch some of them, they'll walk into a room with their head held high. Not only with confidence, some of them with pride and arrogance, and I'm not advocating for that. But when you see the confidence that those kids have when they walk into a room, it's because they know who their daddy is. They know their dad's the king, the prince, or the prime minister. How much more should we as the people of God not walk around in pride or arrogance, but in humble confidence? I know who I am. I'm a son of the oh, I'm a son of the king. I'm a I'm a son and daughter of God. I don't have to live in shame. I can live in confidence because of whose I am. Hallelujah. But we hide. We hide. I'm getting off my notes here, but let me just say this. You know, sometimes we'll try to hide through our performance. <laughs> we'll try to earn his love and affection through our performance. But you know what? Even on your best day, you could read the Bible you know, for nine hours in a day and pray for 
12 hours in a day and speak perfect King James English and do all of that. And guess what? Your righteousness and my righteousness still does not compare to his. We still fall short despite our best efforts. That's why we needed a savior and that's why God came himself to be our savior and die for our sins. You cannot earn it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. You did not earn it and you cannot earn it. There's a lot of things that I do for the Lord, not because I'm trying to earn his love or favor. I know I can't do that, but because he loves me, because he died for me, because he gives me favor, that's why I do what I do. That's why I walk hand in hand. That's why I try to live a holy and pure life, not because I'm trying to earn points with him and someday be in his good graces. He already gave us his good graces when he died on the cross. It's time for us to accept and believe what he has done and walk in peace and confidence with him, not in our performance. Why do you think that there's a moment in the New Testament when the disciples said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us. We can cast them out in your name. And Jesus said, don't rejoice. The demons come out when you cast them out. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, don't rejoice in your performance. Rejoice in your identity. because the performance won't save you. But the fact that your name is written in the book of life and you have a relationship with Jesus, that will save you. That's why there's elsewhere, there's a time in the scripture where it says that there'll be people who will do works in the name of the Lord and the Lord will say, I never knew you because relationship is what Jesus prioritizes, not the performance. Don't rejoice in your own strength. Don't rejoice in what you can do. Rejoice in what he has done for you. That's what Jesus is trying to get you to see. Rejoice in your identity. Rejoice that you are a son and daughter of the creator God, the most high. King, rejoice that you get to be at the king's table and you get to eat spiritual filet mignon every day. You get to eat the best meal that your mind can imagine spiritually. But not, not, I'm not talking about just material earthly things. I'm talking about the virtues. I'm talking about peace and joy, righteousness, patience, forgiveness, kindness, long-suffering, all of the stuff, the banquet that God provides for us. I'm thankful for the king's table. I'm thankful that our brokenness doesn't disqualify us. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe there's a few people here that the Lord wants to speak to. Or maybe sometimes the choir, you know, we're human. We can start getting off of our part a little bit. We can sing off key a lot. I know I can. It happens. So sometimes God needs to talk to the choir and remind us of the basics, remind us of our spiritual ABCs. You know, in the early 1900s, just outside of Paris, France, there was a man named Lewis, and uh, Lewis was a blind church organist. He was a, a devout Christian of some kind. His father was a Christian, and his father was a leather worker. And at three years old, Lewis was playing with his father's leather working equipment. For those of you that have done this, you know you're familiar with the tool called an awl, A-W-L. And Lewis, it's a, it's a sharp tool that you use to poke through leather and make indentations and stuff. And Lewis was playing with this sharp tool, the awl, at three years old, and he poked his eye on accident. And his eye, an infection began to spread in his eye. He went blind in that eye. Because it was the 1800s and they didn't have medical care like we do today, the infection spread to his other eye. 
and poor Lewis became blind in both eyes. The blind were looked down on in that day and age. We're used to today most everybody having care and compassionate, compassion for the blind. Even people that aren't even Christians, you'll see them maybe helping a blind person with groceries or getting him across the street. We forget that in history that was not normal. Jesus Christ changed the way the world viewed the blind. If you don't believe me, look it up, read the history books. It's true. People did not used to look with compassion upon crippled, broken, or blind people like they do today. In fact, in the ancient world, many people thought if you were born broken or or when you were young had some kind of terrible thing like that happen to you, that it was probably because you were just internally messed up. You must have done something wrong. Fate must have cursed you or whatever. This was the common view. The blind were looked down on in that day and age, but because Lewis's father was a Christian, he chose to love Lewis and raise him as a blessing, not a burden. And as Lewis grew up, he would hear stories in church about a man named Jesus who was so much more than a man, who loved the blind and healed the blind. Inspired by this, he set out to create a system whereby he and other blind people could read. There had already been some systems created to help blind people read, but they weren't very effective. And at only 15 years old, Some of the young people hear this right now. At only 15 years old, Lewis Braille created a system of raised dots that corresponded to the alphabet. And from that day forward, the blind have been able to see by running their hands over a page. And if you look around, probably even in this building, because it's required by law, maybe underneath exit signs and things like that, you will see Lewis's legacy. You will see Braille all around us on different signs and buildings, what have you, legally required for the blind. His legacy lives on. And do you know what tool Lewis used to create his first Braille alphabet? Lewis used the leather awl, the same tool that destroyed his eyes 12 years earlier. He used that tool to create the Braille system that is virtually unchanged from then to the system we have today. I tell you this story because I want someone to understand in the deepest parts of your being, your brokenness does not disqualify you. What has happened to you does not disqualify you. You don't have to to live in shame any longer. God knows how to take what hurts you and use it to help you. God knows how to use, take what hurts you and use it to help others. And we can either live in the shame, we can get bitter over the brokenness, or we can give it to God and let him turn brokenness into blessedness. Let him turn pain into promise. Let him turn darkness into deliverance. Come on, no matter what has happened to you, God can redeem you. And just like Lewis Bray, You can play your part in helping the world to see. Jesus specializes in broken people. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Jesus looks for people that he can forgive of much because he knows if they receive it and live for him, they will love him much in return and love others much in return. The people who have been broken, the the prostitute, the addict, the adulterer, those are the people Jesus loves to clean up and redeem. 
Because when they come to him, those people, their grasp of grace will be the greatest. Their repentance will be the deepest. Their love will be the richest. And those are the people that God will raise up and use in a mighty way in his kingdom. The people that the world rejected. The people whose families gave up on them. Come on. this Oh, Jesus. This is the God that we serve. This is how much he cares about you. He specializes in broken people. And there's always, been, there's always been people that don't understand this. Luke chapter 5, Jesus was once again at a table and feasting. Those that know your Bibles, you see Jesus does this a lot. Turns out the king really likes to feast with his kids. He really likes to feast with people who are willing to come to him. He really likes to feast with those that he loves from Genesis to Revelation, and now in Luke 5, he's sitting in a house, and there was a large company of tax collectors, other sinners at the table, and the Pharisees and their scribes, the religious leaders, grumbled. And they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with the lowest of the low, the worst, the scumbags, the ugly, the broken, the insecure, the self-hating, the forgotten? Why do you hang out with them? And Jesus answered and said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came to seek and save those who are lost. I came to heal the broken for the reasons I just mentioned. Because the broken ones, once they are healed, will be the most effective ones. They will be the ones that can turn the world upside down for the glory of God. The greatest testimonies of God's glory is the prostitute who became a prayer warrior. The greatest testimony to the world of God's power and glory is, is, is the alcoholic who became a preacher, the addict who became an usher, whatever it might be. The world can argue and debate all different kinds of stuff, but it cannot argue with a testimony. When there was someone, when nothing else worked and no one else could save them and no one else could redeem them and nothing else could put their marriage back together, but when they came to Jesus and got vulnerable with him and pulled up a seat at the table and started eating the king's diet, all of a sudden they started to heal of things that no one else can heal. And that's the greatest testimony. No atheist, no agnostic, no, no reprobate, whoever it might be, can argue and dismiss the testimony of what God has done in our lives. That's why it's the greatest thing that gives glory to God. He loves healing your brokenness. Why would you hide from him? Because you're broken. Your brokenness is the very thing he wants to take and transform into something beautiful. I really think, and even though we've all done it as humans, it baffles the mind of God. That he is the great physician, the greatest doctor there ever was and ever will be. And yet because we are broken, we hide from him. I'm sure that baffles the mind of God. He's probably thinking, what do you think I'm here for? Why do you think I gave you my word? Why do you think I came to earth and died for you? You don't have to hide from me because you're broken. That's the very reason I'm here and very reason I came. Come to me with your brokenness. You don't have to hide any longer. Ephesians 2 and 6 says that we are meant to be seated in heavenly places. Heavenly places. You were made for the heavenly and not the hellish. 
And maybe this is for someone, maybe you're newer here. I want you to know no matter how many times you've made your bed in hell, as the psalmist said, that doesn't have to be your destiny. That's not what God created you for. But there is a seat in a heavenly place at the king's table that has your name on it. Jesus has pulled the seat out from the table, and he's inviting you in. Your name's on the back of that chair. You don't have to stay seated in hellish places. You don't have to make your bed in hellish places. It is time to take your seat. And can I tell a saint of God as well? I'm not just preaching to new people, actually. Can I tell a saint of God as well? It is time to take your seat as well. It's time to live in the abundance God has for you as well. I'm going to be a broken record tonight. Amen. God wants every person in this place to be seated in abundance, seated in heavenly places. It's time to take the seat that God has prepared for you. It's time to stop feeding yourself with the diet of fear, the diet of doubt, the diet of anxiety, the things of this world, the ways the world works and the ways the world thinks, Jesus is saying, I've got a better diet for you. You can keep feasting on things that feed your fear or you can feast on peace and rest and goodness. It's up to us. What are we gonna let our diet continue to be from here on out? Because God wants us to live in abundance like we never have. I would dare say there are some of us, if we're being honest, and I don't say this in a uh, condemnatory way at all. If I say this and you feel condemnation, that's of the enemy, kick it out. It's okay, we'll accept the Lord's conviction, reminding us that we need to and can change, but we reject the enemy's condemnation, which destroys the part of us that believes we could change, all right? We accept conviction, reject condemnation. But I wanna tell someone here tonight that there's, there's some people here, if you're being honest, you have not really been enjoying Jesus. Is that all right? You've not really been enjoying living for Jesus. And that's maybe a quiet, for, a quiet part for you that was just said out loud. You have not really been enjoying living for him. And the first step is to be able to admit that fact right there. That Lord... I see what your word says, how beautiful you are, how good you are, how abundant you are, and yet I have not truly been living in that. I, I have not, I've not truly been enjoying you. You know, I, I'll, I'll be the first, I'll raise my hand and say, you know, I had the privilege of being raised in church, and that really is a privilege. Um, during my teen years, I made the worst decision of my life, risked my salvation, and walked away from the Lord, and lived in the world. 17 and a half years old, I came back and gave my life to God. The rest is history. But I know what it's like being at church all the time, being raised in church, and not truly enjoying living for Jesus. Because even though I was on the pew and at church, there was a voice of shame. There was a voice of inner critic that kept telling me how no good. If people only knew the thoughts I had, and if people only knew how flawed I was, and if people only knew just, just the inner workings of myself, it, 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 there's no way that they would take me in or love me. Whatever the lie might be, whatever the case may be, that inner voice of shame that for years kept me from enjoying the Lord. And God wants someone to hear tonight, to hear this, that you can be a wonderful child of God that is faithful and coming to the house of God, but because of the lie of the voice of shame. You have not been enjoying your Father, your Lord, your Savior, and it is now time to reject the lies of the voice of shame and begin to enjoy Jesus and enjoy living for Jesus like you have not in a long time or maybe you ever have. Is this okay? Is this all right tonight on a Tuesday to say Jesus wants us to enjoy him more? He's our heavenly Father.
Father. He wants to eat with you. He wants to have fun with you. He wants you to have fun with him. Is that okay to say? It's true. He's your father. Think about the way you look at your kids. You delight in going out and playing catch with them and going to dinner with them and spending time with them and going to an amusement park with them. You delight when you see their eyes delight. That's the same way with our heavenly father. God's wanting to restore the joy of some of your salvation here tonight. You say, but preacher, you don't understand. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what I'm going through right now. I appreciate you saying this, but I don't know if it applies to me. It does apply to you, and I'll give you a scripture again to prove it. I'm I'm closer to being done than you might think, but I'm going to share a few more things with you. Psalms 23 and 5 says, so the psalmist said, you prepare a table, a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. This is also why Paul said his strength is made perfect in our weakness, for his grace is sufficient. Some of us think that we've got to get everything together and our life's got to be perfect before we can feast with the Lord. No, the Lord's saying right now, right now, in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your enemies, whatever they may be, you can feast with me at my table. Maybe your enemies aren't physical individuals. I hope not. Maybe your enemies are fear. Maybe your enemies are depression, anxiety, and doubt. And they're, they're, you're in the presence of them right now. And you think you've got to work it all out by yourself before you can feast. No. Jesus says, yeah, I see your enemies. I see doubt. I see fear and depression. I see loneliness. Why don't you just let me worry about that. I'll fight the battle for you and you sit down at my table and you enjoy this steak. Let's catch up. Let's talk about your day. Let's talk about your interests. Let's hang out together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you see the eyes of your enemies out there in the darkness. Don't worry about them. Just keep eating with me. I'll take care of them. That's what Jesus wants some of you to get tonight. You can feast right now. You don't have to have it all worked out before you can enjoy his peace. That's why it says that he promises the peace that passes understanding. You've been waiting for understanding before you have peace. You've been waiting for the answer to think you have to have the answer to have peace. Paul literally said, Christ promises us the peace that arrives before the understanding arrives. The peace that arrives before the answer arrives. That's what the Lord has promised you. You don't have to wait until you have the information, the answer, or the understanding to have peace. You can have the peace of God right now, right now in your heart and mind. Does anybody believe that? Even in the presence of your enemies, you can feast if you're at the king's table. I'm hurrying. I want to be mindful of your time. Some of us have been crippled or broken by shame. Hear this preacher tonight. God wants to set you free tonight. And guess what? I'll give you some more good news. God doesn't use punishment or anger to end our shame. That doesn't work. He knows we've already been punishing and beating ourselves. Why would he add to that and perpetuate the cycle? He doesn't beat us to end our shame. He doesn't expect us to just scream and scream loud enough until then we earn his approval. That's not how he ends our shame. God's not deaf. He hears you when you pray. God uses feasting to end our shame. This is why the scripture says his kindness leads us to repentance. Hear this preacher. In scripture, when someone is saved or delivered, you will often find feasts and celebration happening. 
You'll find this all throughout your Bible. I don't have time to go through all of it. And the reason for this is because our shame ends when the feast begins. When we accept the Lord's invitation to eat at his table. When we accept his grace. When we give him our fears and just enjoy him. When we believe in his unconditional love towards us. When we choose to believe in the goodness that he's offering us. That's when our shame begins to fall. We already talked about Mephibosheth as one example. How did God end his shame? How did, how did the king end his shame? And we know that's reflective of Jesus. Through feasting. Through celebration. Countless stories. I'm going to skip through some of them. We'll talk about Peter. What about Peter? On the shores of Galilee. After he denied Jesus. He left Jesus when Jesus needed his disciples the most. Betrayed Jesus. Jesus gave him a look. They made eye contact. Peter walked away, no doubt, full of shame. And for three days carried that shame. And after three days of shame, sitting on a boat on the sea, he hears the voice of his king telling him, if I could paraphrase, come dine with me. Come feast with me. Come have breakfast with me. There may have not been a table there on the shore around that fire, but it was a feast. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, I want to be with you, Peter. I want to spend time with you. You've been living for three days in shame. I want to end it right here and use you for my glory. I want to be with you, Peter, even if you can't stand being with yourself. Jesus loves you enough to heal you, to heal you from, from the parts of you that you hate the most. Jesus loves you enough to deliver you from the parts of you that you hate the most. He's come to deliver someone from self-loathing and self-hatred and shame. And he does it with joy, with celebration, with feasting, with letting you know how much he loves and delights in you. I want the musician to come. What about the prodigal son? I'll give you some more examples so you know I'm not just pulling your chain here. The prodigal son, most of us know the story. For those that don't, took his father's money, his inheritance, and he went and spent it all on riotous living, spent it all on prostitutes, lost all of his money, ended up in the pig pen, eating the things that swine ate, came to his senses, realized, I don't have to live this way, had a moment of of remorse and repentance. He went back home. His father saw him from a long way off. Of course, the father represents the Lord. And the father ran to him and scooped him up in his arms and said, son, come into the home. I'm going to prepare the fatted calf. We're going to have filet. We're going to have the nicest dinner. We're going to celebrate because a son that was lost has come home. And there was an older son in the story. He represents the voice of shame. You know what the older son said? Father, how could you do this? Don't you know what he's done? Don't you know how he's treated and and hurt the family name? Don't you know what he did with the money? Don't you know what he did out there with women? Don't you know how messed up he is? And you're not only letting him back in, you're giving him a feast. That's the voice of shame. And that's the same voice that echoes in our own mind. The younger brother didn't even need to hear the older brother because that was the same voice. Don't you think the younger son was telling himself that, the same thing? The voice of shame, but the father represents the voice of grace that says, of course you don't deserve it, younger son. And hey, older son, you don't deserve it either. None of you do. But I love you. And I give not based on your goodness, based on my goodness. 
The prodigal son's repentance allowed him back into the father's house. But you can have a father's house reality and still have a pig pen mentality. You can be saved and loved and still believe the lies of shame. You see, his repentance brought him out of sin, but it was the feasting that brought him out of shame. A God that didn't just let him in the door, but said, I want to sit with you, spend time with you, hug your neck, talk about your life, dine with you, enjoy each other's company. It's one thing to be allowed. It's another thing to be celebrated. It's one thing to realize God has delivered you. It's another thing to realize God delights in you. And I have a feeling there's a few people here that have not believed that thus far. And God sent this preacher a simple message on a Tuesday night to hopefully get you to believe that. He delights in you. He loves you, and he wants to end your shame. Whenever there are people who want to be right with God, but they're so full of shame, God destroys the shame with feasting. The remedy for our shame is not beatings or punishment, even though that's what we deserve for our sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the remedy to destroy our shame is celebration counter, contrary to what our own mind thinks, contrary to the way our inner critic talks to ourselves, but celebration. Jesus took the beating for us so we don't have to keep beating ourselves. Last I checked, the scripture did not say, by your stripes you're healed. Last I checked, the scripture said, by his stripes you are healed. By his beating, you are healed. He already took the beating for you. So when you take the proverbial whip and beat yourself, it doesn't help. Jesus is looking at you saying, hey, I don't need your help. I already took the beating for you so you don't have to beat yourself. Put the whip away and accept the beating I already took for you. Yes, you deserve the whip. That's the whole point, but I took it for you. Yes, you deserve those thorns in your head, but, but you didn't have to take them because I took them for you. Yeah, you deserve the cross and death and mockery, but I took all of that on me for you. So you need to take that whip and throw it away and stop beating yourself and stop listening to the lies of shame. You can never whip yourself enough to get yourself in order the way that you think you need to. It's not gonna work. When you put it down and you accept his whip marks, that everything begins to change. And as I really do conclude in this moment, one more mention of scripture, the greatest example of destroying shame is what Christ did on the cross. We're ending with the cross here. Why don't we all stand if if you're physically able? We're gonna come to this altar in a minute. Christ went to the cross to die for our sins. Hebrews 12 and 2 says that Jesus endured the cross or he dis, and he disregarded, despised the shame. Another way of saying that is he conquered the shame. He, he looked at the shame and said, this is nothing compared to the joy that I am going to bring to the world and the salvation I'm going to bring the world. Jesus destroyed and conquered the shame so we don't have to live in shame. 
And 50 days after this victory, remember how I told you there's always a feast associated with the conquering of shame? 50 days after this victory on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, there was another feast. And you know the story. This feast was called the Feast of Pentecost. We just celebrated the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost a few days ago. And the prophesied outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened on this day. Can I tell you, this is not a coincidence. I know there's Old Testament parallels and reasons. I'm not talking about that. On the base level, it's not a coincidence that Jesus poured out his spirit on a feast because he wants us to understand living for him and receiving his spirit is a feast. It is abundant. It is wonderful. I believe that's the basic reason Jesus gave his spirit on a feast day. He wants us to feast on him and delight in him. He is abundant. He is joy like we've never known. And the feast of Pentecost was an invitation to the king's table. That's why Jesus stood up at a table in John 7 and said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was prophesying about the Holy Ghost. That was the king at the table giving us an invitation. And if you're here tonight and you have not been filled with the spirit, that same invitation is being offered to you today. Jesus wants to fill you with his spirit. And if you have already received the spirit, but you've been living in shame and you've been living away from the king's table, or if you have not been eating at the king's table, he is inviting you to come in just a moment as well. He wants you to feast on the fruit of his spirit, enjoy his goodness, and when we have a relationship with Jesus, we don't have to live in shame any longer. If you already accepted his invitation and maybe years ago you received that feast of Pentecost, that that beautiful Pentecostal experience, it's time for you to start believing what you have within you. You You know what's just as important as receiving the Holy Ghost and being baptized in the name of Jesus? Your faith in receiving the Holy Ghost and being baptized in the name of Jesus. In other words, what's just as important as you actually experiencing it is you believing in what it has accomplished for you. There's a lot of people that experience it and thank God, but they never truly believe what that has done for them, what it means to have God within them, what it means to have the record of all their sins washed away so we have beautiful saints of God that live less than their creative potential and live on the pew in shame. But it's time for you to start believing, actually believing what it means, the profundity of a God that loved you enough to fill you with his spirit and wash you in his blood. It's time to not just receive the Holy Ghost, but to believe in what the Holy Ghost accomplishes for us. It's time for us not just to be baptized in Jesus' name, but to believe what was done for you and the blessing it gave to you when you were baptized all those years ago. It's time to reject the voice of shame and begin believing the truth of God and his word. Come on, I'm done preaching. Jesus is inviting us to the king's table tonight. This altar is open. Jesus' hand is out. Whosoever will, whoever wants to dine with him, whoever's ready for more joy, whoever is willing to be honest and say I have not been enjoying living for the Lord like I could and I want to start enjoying him like I never have before hallelujah no condemnation no shame Jesus is here in love offering you abundance offering you more come on that's it will you come and lay your whip down and recognize you can't heal yourself with your own stripes But place your faith and trust in his stripes.
It's not about what you can do. It's about what Christ has done for you. Come on, let's come, hands raised. Let's accept his invitation. Let's tell him, Jesus, I believe you. I believe your word. I believe that you love me. I believe that I'm valued. I've heard it since going to Sunday school, but I maybe never really believed it. I'm going to start believing it right now because joy comes from that. Peace comes from that. When I recognize and believe who I am, when I recognize and believe what it means to be a son and daughter of God. Come on. Come on. That's it. Keep on coming. There's a king inviting you to feast with him Come on, that's it. That's it. Keep praying. If there's a singer, singer's going to sing. But let's focus in on him tonight.